Here's a very interesting young man about town of whom I've heard in recent months, but tonight is the first time we have met. Barack Obama is a lawyer in a firm that essentially works in the broad realm of civil rights litigation. Uh, he is a graduate of the Harvard Law School, where indeed he was the um, president of the Harvard Law Review, which is a very significant post and usually leads to becoming instantly Supreme Court Justice uh, clerk and possibly later on a Supreme Court Justice. But here you are in Chicago doing civil rights law and community organizing still in a way and uh, working hard, so to speak, on the streets. That's right. Why aren't you up there in the the world of power? Well, the... Uh you know, here's where the action is. I, I like being on the streets. Mm -hmm. uh, I uh, I like to tell people that one of the best educations I ever got, and this is a, a section in my book, is uh, being a community organizer here in Chicago, in the south side of Chicago. And my assessment coming out of law school was that uh, more work needed to be done in the realm of politics and community and legislation as opposed to the law. I think that a lot of the changes that came out of the era of Warren and and uh, Brennan, Brown versus Board of Education, I think that era is over. Getting changed through the courts at this point is extremely difficult. And I think... Uh, the Thurgood Marshall route. That's exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly right. I think times have changed, and I think now is a time where we need uh, a renewed political vision and a renewed uh, vision of community and, and mutual responsibility. And I think I can do that better at now, the grassroots level. In this... Um, Excellent new memoir of yours, Dreams from My Father, a story of race and inheritance, which is just published by Times Books. Uh, concerns of the sort you've just been voicing are also interwoven with a very interesting personal tale, a narrative, which begins in Hawaii. Let's go to the personal story to begin with. Well, my father was a black African. He was Kenyan. And he came to Hawaii and the United States as part of the first wave of Africans after uh, African independence. And the idea was that they were going to come to the West and uh, find uh, sort of the skills and education that they could take back to the continent and use to develop their country. And it was a very optimistic time, I think, for him and for the entire continent of Africa. And it was matched by optimism here in America because this was at the dawn of the civil rights movement. Uh, my mother was a white American, and she was coming... Uh, to some degree from the opposite direction, at least culturally. She was uh, a mid-American uh, from Kansas. I, uh, I like to joke that if you see pictures of my grandparents, they look like they step right out of American Gothic. Mm -hmm. And uh, they had traveled west from Kansas, making their way through Texas and Oklahoma and Seattle, and eventually arrived in Hawaii. And, and there my mother and father met, and uh, that's where I was born. And a lot of what the book is about, I think, is me working through... Uh, the terms of my birth, uh, the, the notion that uh, being at once African and American, black and white, uh, I spent a lot of time struggling with uh, the, the question of, of how I could reconcile uh, those two halves of myself. Of course, apart from what happens on the continent of Africa, uh, black people the world over are quite commonly, in fact, what the South Americans would call mestizos. Right. They are black and white. Right. Well, I think that's right. One of the interesting things uh, about the book and sort of the, the process of discovery that I go through is uh, realizing that we are part of a hybrid culture. Uh, America, by definition, is a hybrid culture, and certainly African-American 
culture is is a hybrid culture. Uh, but I think a lot of times we don't see it that way because of the racial polarization that exists in the society. And so a lot of what the book ab- is about is me exploring that issue of, of, of a, a multiple identity, a multiple heritage, uh, trying to sort through those issues, and, and driven by the fact that my father went back to Kenya when I was very young, when I was two, so that I did not know him uh, very well. Uh, he became a fairly important man in the government. Actually. That's that's right. And uh, he he joined the Kenyan government uh, post-independence, worked with Kenyatta, did a lot of uh, interesting work, but eventually was actually blacklisted from the government uh, for speaking out against against uh, issues of tribalism and nepotism and uh, ended up dying a, a very bitter man before I got a chance to know him very well. And so in some ways... The title of the book, Dreams from My Father, derives out of the fact that he's sort of a dreamlike mythic figure, and he's driving me uh, in, in this journey to, to figure out uh, who I am by figuring out who he was. To what degree, as you think about your, quote, black friends these days, uh, to what degree are many of them torn or at least bothered by the same confusion of identity because, in fact, they also know of white parents or grandparents uh, or they can figure out that they had some such, even if they can't fully trace the genealogy. Right. Well, one of the interesting things uh, that I find when I talk to young people or people my age, uh, black and white, we're all confused about identity in, mm-hmm. in American society at this point. Uh, we've got a multicultural society that's becoming more multicultural. I think it's become the fault line for a huge number of arguments and debates and, and concerns. Uh, I think that that affects African Americans to some degree more profoundly because historically they have been uh, the most marginalized group. They have been the other. And so they have to struggle with these things uh, in in ways that are more pronounced than uh, young white people may have to uh, struggle with them. But I think that uh, across the board, we're all trying to figure out how can we uh, live together and uh, and affirm a common culture, uh, but at the same time retain some sense of uh, of our uniqueness. You know, I'm suddenly remembering, and I'm given, like most older people, to uh, falling into anecdotes and telling long-winded, garrulous stories. <laughs> I'm sorry, I like listening to them. Well, I'm suddenly remembering, and I've never told this story before, I don't think, um, a seminar in a sociology, um, on some sociological topic, when I was getting a master's degree up in Madison. Right. And one of the guys in the seminar was um, a fellow named Dave McKinney who went on to become a well-established and significant sociologist. He was a black fellow. And uh, our professor, whom I guess I shouldn't name, was assigning us... This was a graduate course. He was assigning research projects or talking to research projects. And in one such planning session, after he had talked about a number of possibilities and that we might do based upon ideas we had put forward, he said, and uh, Dave, uh, you should work on social stratification uh, maybe in... Uh, the downtown or the east side of Madison, that would be a good place. But, of course, what you want to do is work in the black community and look at the black angle and look at black middle class and working class differences. And Dave blew up in rage. And he said, I'm not a black sociologist. I'm a sociologist who is black, but I'm not here just to study blacks. I'm an American sociologist. Now, this is a long, long time ago. But already, the assumption that if you're a black man, your interest must be in areas of work that relate to black people uh, was to him irksome and indeed a kind of insult. Well, I think, I think that's, that, that's a, 
interesting story that uh, you see ramifications of it uh, throughout the, the culture, certainly among young people. If you look at uh, young African-Americans, I think they are constantly struggling with the idea of uh, what it means to be black and the need to reject what they perceive as being white. Uh, and when I was, I talk about in the book, uh, organizing out in the far south side of Chicago in public housing projects where uh, I would talk to kids who've decided that the idea of reading, for example, is a white thing. Uh, mm. and, and they are determined not to learn, uh, in part because they perceive that as an encroachment on their identity. That's playing Whitey's game. That's exactly right. Yeah. And, and I think that's, uh, that's a danger, uh, and, uh, a mistake, but I think in a situation like these kids are in, in public housing projects where they don't have role models, they're not being affirmed in any kind of way, they're not seeing uh, uh, the, the possibilities of, of uh, a broader culture, uh, I think it's, it's very easy to sort of reject that. And what's interesting, I think, is that a lot of young black uh, middle class uh, kids end up being shaped and affected by those same trends. Yeah. Isn't it amazing when you really think about it? how skin hue matters so much. I don't mean in that blacks, so-called, are uh, given inferior status in this society, but I mean within black society and in the white world reacting to black entrance into the general world, that uh, lightness of complexion is really clearly associated with uh, social mobility, and with the distribution of rewards. I, I think that the... I remember when I was... Uh, in the book, I talk about being seven or eight. And in, at the time, I was actually living abroad. I was living in Indonesia because my mother had remarried an Indonesian and I was living in Southeast Asia. And my first profound awareness of race, as I remember it, is thumbing through, uh, you know, the old life magazines. Uh, and I had found some in the U.S. Embassy Library, and I'm flipping through them, and I suddenly come across a picture of a man who has this bleached, splotchy skin, and I can't figure out why, what's wrong with him? Is he an albino? Is he sick? You know, is he getting radiation treatment? And I, I read sort of the blurb at the bottom, and it describes how this man has uh, bought uh, bleaching creams, which I guess were popular among uh, African Americans or had been peddled to African Americans in the... Uh, 40s and 50s. Worse than hair straighteners. Worse than ha hair straighteners, and, and the, the results were irreversible. And hmm. and uh, I, I remember sort of getting chills and and, and uh, being extraordinarily frightened by this idea of, of uh, uh, why would somebody do this to themselves? Uh, because I think that I had been to some degree insulated from uh, that kind of uh, uh, self-hatred. Uh, up until that age, and to see that was a was a profound uh, and and scary experience, and I think permanently altered how I viewed um, the issue of race in the society. I when I looked in the mirror that night, uh, I looked at myself differently. I always took it as somehow emblematic, symbolic, uh, metaphorically representative of a secret and hidden reality that for a while the head of the NAACP, and he worked very hard and was a very significant leader, was a man named Walter White. His name was White, and he was largely white in heritage, undoubtedly. Right. Well, I've, you know, I've got a friend who uh, is a partner in my firm mm -hmm. who tells a wonderful story. He, if you look at him, looks like uh, Ted Kennedy, uh, but his father was black. 
and his mother also considered herself black. And he tells this wonderful story of when he was a, a young kid uh, out in uh, Woodlawn on the south side, uh, going to school his first day. He comes home. His mother asks, uh, how'd you like school? He says, oh, it was, it was wonderful. It was fine. He's, she said, how do you like your teacher? He says, I, I liked her. She's very nice. She says, well, uh, his mother says, uh, was she black or white? And he says, well, what are we? He says, well, we're black. He says, oh, well, the teacher's white. And, of course, uh, when you know, uh, the parents go in to pick up the report card, they meet this woman who's coal black. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's, uh, he's identified as white. Uh, so uh, I think the confusion of color uh, in the society it goes very deep and uh, touches on people's psyches in ways that I think we sometimes still ignore or don't recognize. What do you make of this story? Do you know this story? Just a little funny one. Uh, about a first day in class, and that's what brings it to mind, and the teacher's calling the roll mm-hmm. for in fourth grade, and she calls the roll, and then she reaches the name. She says, Sidney Goldstein, and a black boy in the back raises his hand and says, uh, here, teacher. She says, Sidney Goldstein. She says, that's me, teacher. He's <laughs> got a ghetto speech style as well. She says, you are Sidney Goldstein? Yes, ma'am. She says, uh, come see me after the class. And she does she says to him after the class, I'm sorry, Sidney, but I really am a little bit confused. Um, are you um, are you Jewish? Goldstein is a Jewish name. He says, uh, he says yes, ma'am. He says, well, but you're black. And he says, and you have to know Yiddish to really appreciate it. He says, no, ma'am, I've got enough tzuras being a schwarzer, uh, which means, translate, I've got enough trouble being a black person. That's why I'm Jewish. Um, <laughs> There is so much confusion about things of this sort. Well, I, the uh, you know, my wife actually has a uh, uh, an uncle who's a rabbi. Yeah. And my, my wife is a African American woman mm. from the South Side. Is he a black rabbi or a, a white rabbi? He's he's a black rabbi. Yeah. He's uh, and and very devout. Um, well, I think that's one of the fascinating things about America. Right. We can, kind of, mean, we can kind of recreate ourselves within the ourselves. limits that nature or something sets up on Or society uh, imposes. And and I think one of the things that the book is about, and certainly what was true for me, uh, was having to reinvent myself, having to figure out um, what does it mean to be a black man in America. Uh, And so uh, at least the the first half of the book, I think, chronicles uh, my trying to sort through all the images that are constantly yeah. being thrown well, in front of us. Come back to that very question. I know you addressed this in the book, but address it now. What does it mean to be a black man in America? Lots of black men would say it's a humiliation every day of your life. You know, I think that it is a uh, struggle. Uh, and I think that struggle can be positive and negative. I think it can be strengthening or debilitating. Mm. Uh, one of the things that uh, I realized early on, I think, helped me to reconcile uh, my own heritage, uh, my own divided heritage, was recognizing that I think the black American experience in this country um, expresses some of the best impulses in the country. Uh, uh, the, the overcoming of uh, society's constraints, uh, the need to reinvent oneself despite great odds. Uh, the ability to adapt and survive and, and maintain hope in the face of despair. Uh, and, and to me, at least, uh, what uh, I decided, being an African-American man, 
uh, entailed was making a decision that my life was going to be about uh, working with people who are uh, less fortunate and yeah. and struggling with being in the midst of that struggle to push the envelope of equality and opportunity in the society. I've lived in urban America for a long time. I was raised in New York, uh, then in various college towns around the country, uh, two years in idyllic upper New Hampshire before coming 30 years ago to Chicago. Um, so I've seen a fair amount over a rather long period of time. And it seems to me that there have been some changes, many for, quote, the better, but in fact, uh, some new and desperate themes have entered into American life generally and into black life more specifically. I'm aware of a kind of division of the house. That's the term they use in the British Parliament. Well, mm. For major votes, they stand up and walk in one direction or the other, divide the house. When it comes to American blacks, there's a kind of a division of the house, which I think did not obtain when I first became socially conscious and uh, looked at... Um, racial reality in America. Uh, there are blacks who've not fully entered into everything, but in fact, by virtue of the civil rights revolution and the legalization of consequences of that civil rights revolution, they've had opportunities they haven't had before. There's been a lot of social mobility, right. a lot of penetration of professional life, uh, academic life, and so on, mm -hmm. for large no and commercial life, right. for large numbers of black citizens. Mm -hmm. And the one, and then there's a lot of people left behind, and we know s about the making of what somebody labeled a long time ago the underclass. I've never quite been able to trace that etymologically, right? As, uh, though I think it may have been first used publicly by Bobby Kennedy, hmm. the term underclass. But we know that the underclass is desperately caught in a cycle downward, and things grow worse and worse and worse for those young girls who are having babies without husbands, and uh, those kids who refuse to learn because that's Whitey's game, and uh, who are hooked not merely on the use of dope, but the selling of dope. Yeah, as they, about a lot of times the best sellers uh, don't use. Why? Or they wouldn't be the best sellers. That's exactly right. They wouldn't right. have their wits about them. Right. Uh, but we know what inner city life has become and how desperate it is, uh, and that it's not getting better, in many ways getting worse, and welfare reform is pointed towards that problem, but I doubt that the kind of welfare reform plans we're getting will really reverse that situation. It's a desperate situation, mm -hmm. it seems to me, for those blacks left behind in the inner city. Right. And I know you've been working with them. Right. You're, you're sort of a migrant or a, uh, a missionary to the inner city, uh, trying to improve their situation. It's more than situation, though. It's also by now culture. It's the culture of the inner city, which in some ways dooms them to a dreadful future. Right. All of that is setting the stage. I'd love to hear your extended thoughts on those matters right after we pause for a quick round of commercial messages. And our guest, Barack Obama, that's spelled O-B-A-M-A. -A. You want to remember that spelling because you're probably one going to want to get your hands on this excellent new memoir, Dreams from My Father, a story of race and inheritance, Times Books, the publishers. I was giving you a little set piece about what's happened in black America. Do you think I'm right? Well, I, I certainly think that what's true is that uh, the economics of one portion of black America uh, is, uh, is different from the other half. I think there has been a, a divide 
within a division the of the house. A division of the house. More right. so now than was the case even 20 years ago. I think that's certainly true, and, and one of the consequences of that ends up being a division in terms of where people are living, where they're going to school. Uh, you see a lot of black flight now from the inner city, whereas it used to be just white flight. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I think all those things are in force. I do think that there are some ties that bind the African-American community together. I think that if you talk to the average middle-class black person who's been quite successful, uh, and my wife's family would be an example. My wife and her brother went to Princeton. Uh, Princeton. Uh, my wife went on to Harvard Law School. She's got a very successful career, so does her brother. Uh, but within their family, they still have people who are, uh, uh, who are hurting, who are struggling, uh, trying mm -hmm. to make ends meet, trying to pay the bills. I think it's much more common in African-American uh, communities and African-American cultures, no matter how successful you are, to still have links oh, yeah. to the, those communities that are not doing well. Do, do you know Brent Staples? Uh, I, I know of him, certainly. Brent was a student in my department at the University of Chicago. Right. Wrote and, a wonderful book. And he re he's a, on the editorial, editorial board of the New York Times. Mm -hmm. And he wrote a very interesting book we talked about on this program about a year ago. Um, of course, Brent is utterly socially mobile. Right. Having got a, gotten a doctorate in psychology, he went on to become a major journalist, and he's very well but appropriately rewarded. Right. And his book is about all of that, but it's also about the death of his brother, who was a, a drug pusher. Well, I think, I think that's right. You know, John Edgar Weidman is another example, a, right. a, a terrific yeah. writer whose, uh, whose brother uh, ended up going to prison for murder. And whose son, I think. And whose son, I think, had, had yeah. similar problems. And so what that means, I think, is that within African-American culture, there's a profound appreciation for uh, the difficulties that uh, less fortunate African-Americans go mm. through. I think sometimes that does not <laughs> express itself uh, politically in, in ways that it needs to, because uh, I think that a lot of uh, middle-class blacks, although they feel the pain, so to speak, of, of their uh, less fortunate brethren, end up not rolling their sleeves and making the sacrifices that they, they may need to. Uh, on the other hand, you know, one of the things that's tough to do is to, um, let's say if you're middle-class, to, to stay in the inner city if you feel threatened by crime or uh, inadequate schools. Those are the kinds of struggles that uh, are ongoing, and I think African Americans feel them more deeply, but hopefully uh, the larger society needs to uh, think about them as well. But what can be done that, about that culture where the young men are unemployed, unless they're engaged in drug pushing, where violence is rampant, where marriages don't get formed, and all kids are born out of wedlock? Well, you know, the interesting thing, Milt, is, is that in terms of percentages... You can go into the poorest community in the city, and the majority is still uh, intact in terms of working, living, trying to raise their children. The, the problem that you've got is that half of, let's say, the other half uh, makes it increasingly tough on, on uh, the half that is struggling and trying Patrick, to... I, I've got to remind you of a crucial statistic. In Chicago, better than 70% of all black children are born out of wedlock. Mm -hmm. To be sure, the national average for that is increasing also. Some 30% of all Americans are born out of wedlock. Right. Uh, a transformation which is horrible to contemplate. We did a program about family formation or the, the lack of family formation in America these days and how that is in some ways our ultimate cultural challenge or our mm -hmm. ultimate social challenge. It, that promises ruin 
for our whole civilization. Right. But I guess what my point is, is that it is possible to reverse these things, I think. Is it? In, that's in, the, well, I, that's the crucial question. You know, How does I, one reverse it? I think it is. And, and I would say that you start with uh, issues of employment. I mean, I talk yes. about my... I would agree in, 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 in the book, uh, one of the areas where I was working and organizing was uh, the far south side of Chicago, where there had been a lot of reliance on steel plants... Mm -hmm. uh, all throughout the southeast side. That used to be the steel capital of Remember the world. Remember one of your first campaigns concerned the close down of Wisconsin that, Steel. That's exactly right. And uh, I think that those jobs that were lost had a devastating effect in terms of yeah. marriage rates, in terms of uh, families being able to support themselves, in terms of a tax base for schools. Uh, if we can reverse those trends, uh, and that's a national problem, that's an, a problem of uh, sort of national will and, and national economic policy, uh, then I think we can do something about that with relative dispatch. Uh, you know, I think these uh, communities are more, uh, there's more hope in them and more uh, resourcefulness in them that you I say, think a lot of say, times we expect. If we can reverse those trends. That's right. But, but how in the world do you reverse those trends when American corporations are shipping their jobs overseas, when uh, the kinds of jobs available are no longer muscle power jobs, as much as they are mental power jobs with all kinds of special skills, increasingly uh, uh, computer skills and such related electronic abilities right. become very important. And one needs advanced education, if not a PhD. You need maybe two years of a good junior college uh, to learn some of those special right. skills. But our public school system in a place like Chicago, to turn to it for a moment rather than low employment rates, is a devastatingly inoperative uh, and dysfunctional kind of thing. It's a disaster. It's good right to now. teachers, right. but isn't good to students and doesn't teach them anything. Right. And hardly, and, and doesn't graduate half of the kids who ever get into high school. Mm -hmm. uh, what's the way out? Well, I think you put your finger on it. I think education is a critical component, and I think the commitment to children is a critical component. Uh, one of the things that I get concerned about, and I think, again, this has to do with uh, the divide between the races, and one of the most unfortunate things about uh, racial polarization is the fact that the larger society can look at the children of the south side of Chicago or Harlem or Watts and say, those are not our children. Uh, those are not ours. Uh, we don't have to invest in them. Uh, all we need to do is to keep them away. Uh, I think that's a profound mistake. I think if we look at those children as a potential resource, uh, then I think that they still have the possibility of learning, and that's going to require major investments. In the public schools in Chicago, I chair uh, something called the uh, Annenberg mm -hmm. uh, Challenge Grant. Uh, They're giving us $50 million. Giving us $50 million. Mm -hmm. and to the schools of Chicago. To, to the schools of Chicago. Now, that is a drop in the bucket uh, in terms of the Chicago city budget. But at the same time, it's amazing to see all the teachers and principals and students who are tremendously excited about potentially creating smaller schools with, where teachers are giving more attention to the students, uh, where principals have more control over curriculum. Uh, I think there's the possibility of a lot of innovation there and a lot of excitement. But, you know, the problem is that it is such a drop in the bucket. And I think that if we made intelligent investments in these communities, I think a lot of them could be turned around. Shall I name another social reality that's a very worrisome one? Please. This has to do with white attitudes. Right. But these white attitudes have some foundation. Mm -hmm. 
whites are increasingly scared stiff by young blacks. Right. Because there's more and more hostility, more and more rage, more and more depredations upon society generally. Mm -hmm. Though, to be sure, black-on-black crime is much more common than black-on-white crime. Well, I think the... uh, But that tends to make for a kind of resentment now. Sure. Apart from job competitiveness, which also occurs at working-class levels. But that makes for a kind of resentment and a kind of distrust where you do, where lots of whites do want to push blacks, particularly uh, underclass blacks, so-called, to push them out of the range visibility. Well, you know, I see it, uh, I saw it in my own family. Uh, you know, one of the stories I tell, as I said, the, the story begins with my parents meeting in the midst of the civil rights movement and a sense of great optimism. And uh, when I'm sort of in my teens and about to go off to college, my, I have a conversation with my grandparents where it uh, turns out that my grandmother has been uh, met by a black panhandler at, uh, at a bus stop and is terrified. And I'm confronted with uh, having to deal with the fact that someone in my own family uh, is um, feeling the kinds of uh, things that you're talking about, I think, in the larger white society, and and obviously is extremely painful for me because this person who my grandmother is so afraid of could be my brother, or could be my uncle, or could be my father. So I I think you're right that the fear is there. I am not certain that the fear uh, is always justified. Uh, certainly when I'm out hailing a cab uh, and I'm dressed in a uh, business suit. You get the usual uh, And I get the bypass. usual bypass. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I can't go around and, <laughs> as I'm hailing the cab saying, hey, hold on, I'm multicultural, you know. The, uh, <laughs> stop and... Uh, hold up a little stop, flag right, saying, I had a white mother. Right, you know, <laughs> stop and pick me up. Uh, that's not yeah. how it works. And, and the same thing happens when I go into an elevator and, and a woman clutches her purse. Uh-huh. Nevertheless, I do think that, uh, I do think that crime is, a, uh, uh, is an important factor in uh, the deterioration of, of, of race relationships. I guess one thing that I'm confused about, and I don't know where exactly this happened, was this notion that uh, separates out notions of poverty from, from crime. I mean, I think the... I am not saying that there's a perfect link between joblessness and crime, for example. I can say with a a great deal of confidence that if you had full employment in African-American communities, uh, that the crime rate among young black males would be a lot lower. Uh, If the public schools were teaching young black men to read uh, and, and to write and to do arithmetic, I suspect that they would not be... Uh, out on the streets. And, uh, and so I guess when we've abdicated responsibility for these communities uh, and have disinvested from these communities and have decided that we're going to take a fortress mentality to these communities, for us to then be surprised mm-hmm. by uh, the rage and hopelessness that are expressed in these communities, I think is, uh, uh, is delusional. I mean, I think we've, we've got to do something about it. We haven't drawn enough from the narrative portions of your book, Dreams from My Father. There's a fascinating family history there, and a history of self-discovery and identity struggle Mm -hmm. on your part during your days as an undergraduate at Columbia, during your days back here in Chicago as an organizer, during your days at Harvard as a law student, and in your career since you graduated from Harvard Law and came back to Chicago. Uh, One of the most interesting portions of your book and I hope we might talk about it right after some impending commercials, is your first major trip back or to Kenya right. to meet your father's family uh, and 
uh, your encounters there. Uh, I'll say not a word about it, except I found uh, there were a number of very revelatory occasions, and I'll ask you to talk about that right after we return from these words. And we return to one of the distinguished younger professionals in this town, Barack Obama, uh, who is the author of the new book, Dreams from My Father, a story of race and inheritance. From that book, we're going to draw shortly with a special account of your visit to Kenya, but I should add a few things that the book is published by Times Books. I didn't add to your various credentials that you are also um, on the faculty of the law school at the University of Chicago, not on a full-time basis. No, I, I, I teach a seminar on civil rights law. Yeah. at the University of Chicago. been doing that about three years. And the, law, and the law firm that you're associated with is? Davis Minor, Barnhill, and Gallen. It's sort of a boutique civil rights firm here mm -hmm. in the city. been active in a lot of voting rights cases, employment discrimination cases, class actions. Now let's go to Kenya. What year was that you went over there? You know, I went there for the first time in 1987. Uh, and as you know from the book, uh, I was already uh, 27 at that point. Mm -hmm. uh, I had met some of my half-siblings, brothers and sisters, here in the States. They had come to visit me. Uh, I had a brother who was living in Washington, D.C., who I met for the first time while I was in Chicago. And so we all planned a return home at the same time. And uh, it, was a, it was a wonderful experience, uh, but you know, also filled me with a great deal of mixed emotions, partly because I think for African Americans today, uh, Africa has become a idealized place, a sanitized place in our minds. It's, it's more of a, a mythic place than it is a, 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 a reality. And I was affected by that. I think going over there, I was thinking in terms of, you know, this is going to be like roots and I'm going to show up and, uh, you know, find myself and the ancestors will rise up and sort of the clouds will, will part. And, you know, one of the things that was, uh, interesting for me was discovering that a lot of the struggles that I was going through as an African-American here, uh, Africans are going through uh, in Africa. Um, and those are struggles with identity and adaptation to modernization, adaptation to urbanization. And I've got a, uh, you know, I met young brothers there for the first time who, uh, you know, they were spending most of their time watching uh, music videos and, you know, talking about Michael Jordan and Magic Johnson and uh, the struggles that they were going through in terms of employment and trying to find jobs weren't that different from the, the kinds of issues that young black men were going, uh, going through here on the south side of Chicago. They didn't have what Franz Fanon and Felix Houphouet-Boigny called negritude. Well, no, they, the, they didn't. I mean, I think the, the, the notion that there is some quote-unquote authentic African culture that's pure yeah. uh, any more than there's a authentic or pure uh, Francophile culture or pure uh, Irish culture. Well, you know, the truth is is that um, there's been so much cross-pollinization uh, mm -hmm. that uh, there there is no such thing. I, I think that's a futile search if we're looking for something authentic. And also, of course, Kenya hasn't worked out too well. There was great hope for it, and the great Mau Mau rebellion as led by uh, Kenyatta, um, and then the foundation of a democratic state there, rather early in the transformation right. of Africa, was very hopeful, but uh, 
the politics has apparently degenerated, it's your view, has degenerated into an awful lot of pocket uh, filling and an awful lot of dirty play and uh, the values that you find at best represented in America you don't seem to find in Kenya. Well, you know, I, it, it's unfortunate, uh, but I think it's symptomatic of a lot of what's happened, not just in Africa, but I think in a lot of yeah. third world countries outside of Asia, uh, which I think have, have experienced a, a terrific economic boom, if at times sort of at the sacrifice of liberal democratic values. But I do think that the problems that Africa face at this point are basically political problems. Uh, they basically have to do with not creating stability uh, f and and a sense of security and, and reasonable expectations for uh, the people there. And as a consequence, uh, I think you do have a class of elites that are basically preying upon and extracting from uh, the larger population. And so, you know, without that middle class uh, uh, that uh, exists in this country as a buffer, I think you have... Uh, a tremendous amount of exploitation and graft and corruption that I think has been debilitating to the country. Well, you were saying privately to me, I think during the last commercial break, that you're rather disappointed with the discipline of the law in which you're trained. Don't you find a fair amount of crassness and a fair amount of victimization or misuse of power in that profession as you do in most professions? Is the middle class really exempt from corruption? <laughs> well, you know, I, th I am still a believer in the... Uh, the rule of law. I, I think you know. Well, I have a, a good lawyer should. I, I, you know, I have a I have a discussion uh, with a Kenyan historian towards the end of the book, yeah. where uh, she's talking about uh, how, in a modern culture, we have to choose rule of law, uh, even if it conflicts sometimes with tribal loyalties or traditions. <laughs> and I think in our society, uh, the rule of law has been. Uh, uh, an important, uh, a critical element in weaving together a diverse society like we have. Unfortunately, what is true, I think, is that the legal profession, like uh, many other professions these days, is so driven by commerce at this point uh, that ethics, um, civility, uh, all those things have eroded. And I know that in my practice, for example, in a civil rights practice, you know, people spend a lot of time talking about affirmative action, but I will tell you that trying to uh, win a discrimination case these days, no matter how uh, powerful that case may be, is extremely difficult, in part because the strategy of large corporations at this point is to hire uh, large law firms, which will take a slash-and-burn approach. They will spend three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars $400,000 beating down a small plaintiff, uh, it becomes very difficult to enforce some of the laws. And, and in that sense, I think that makes the, the entire society cynical about the law. Our general topic tonight in discussion with Barack Obama is uh, this country black and white. But of special focus and of special interest is individual Americans who are both black and white. And the special dilemmas and opportunities and identity issues that they regularly confront and the personal solutions they find to those issues. Um, all such persons, as well as any other persons who so choose, are uh, cordially invited to give us a call and join in this conversation. There still is some 22 minutes, uh, there are some 22 minutes left to the program. We've just opened the lines. Uh, do by all means, if you have a contribution to make or a question to raise, 
do give us a call. The number, as ever, is 591-7200, 591-7200, and the area code 312 if you're calling long distance. Get your calls in quickly, please. We'd love to have a few good calls, just as the Marines need a few good men. So now's the time to move. 591-7200. Um, let me broach something else, something that deeply concerns me and um, by which I feel... To, uh, in which I feel much pain. Mm. You can probably anticipate. Your name is Obama. That's your African right. name from your father. My right. name is Rosenberg. Right. Um, I don't know how endemic it is or how widespread it is throughout the country in black communities, mm -hmm. but the quality of easy recourse to anti-Semitism and to mm -hmm. anti-Semitic slur and defamation mm -hmm. within Chicago black life uh, is very painful to me. Mm -hmm. It wasn't there when I arrived in this town 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. It clearly <clears throat> has been popularized by the black Muslim movement. Mm -hmm. Not the black Muslim movement as run by Elijah Muhammad in the days when I first came to town, mm -hmm. but rather that branch headed by Farrakhan, uh, whereas the other branch has gone more towards conventional Islam right. and isn't heard of as much, but they are significant in size and I think they do very good work. Um, there's terrible pain there, and I just wonder what your reaction yeah. is. I know you don't share those views, but I wonder how you account for the fact that that has diffused so easily in American, in Chicago black life. Right. Well, uh, one thing I should mention is that uh, uh, my name, uh, Barak, uh, actually means the same thing as Baruch. Baruch, yeah. Uh, yeah, it means blessed. So it uh, just shows you that uh, mm. there was a time when uh, we spoke the same language. <laughs> Uh, the same Semitic roots. I, I am distressed by uh, certainly anti-Semitism in uh, Chicago and elsewhere in African-American societies, the same way I'm sure you're distressed uh, when you hear uh, anti-black sentiment in uh, the Jewish community. I, you know, I think that a lot of it is historical. Uh, I think a lot of it, uh, you know, there's a saying that when... Uh, uh, the larger society gets a cold, African-American society gets pneumonia. Well, yeah. I think that's also true for certain pathologies. Uh, you know, when you've got a poor, vulnerable uh, community, uh, they are more prone to adopt some of the stupider, wackier notions in the society, and I think anti-Semitism has a long and sordid history in this society. Yeah, but some black public figures have traded upon it. I've mentioned well, Farrakhan, right. but there's a wide movement around him, and, and black nationalism generally yeah. in recent years has traded upon this. Well, I would actually say that uh, my experience, my personal experience has been that uh, it gets a lot of publicity, but is not as widespread and deep <clears throat> as I think it's sometimes portrayed in the press. Uh, I think it's there. I think uh, it needs to be spoken out against. Uh, I think that uh, most of it has to do with ignorance in the same way that most of uh, our racial debates and, and conflicts have to do with ignorance. I mean, we live in a land full of strangers. And one of the fascinating things, if you ask some of these African Americans who are talking about uh, in anti-Semitic ways, well, uh, do you know any Jews? Uh, do you, Would you know one if you saw one? Well, they don't, right? I mean, this has more to do with uh, something <clears throat> that they fabricated in their heads. And, and I think... It, that's why it's so important to, uh, for all of us to take some responsibility to reach out, to, to publicly speak out when you know hatred and 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 uh, and, and venom is 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 out there in, in the public discourse. But 
people allow it more than they would if it came as it does come from white racialist groups. Uh, it's almost as if that's a special prerogative available to blacks if they choose to employ it because we have to forgive it. You know, my sense, uh, you know, I, I would disagree with it. I, th- I think that uh, uh, that may have been the case uh, 10 years ago, but I certainly think that uh, 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 Jesse Jackson's remark uh, during his presidential campaign... The Hymetown remark yeah, of so many I, years and, ago. And, and I think... Uh, uh, I think a number of subsequent remarks. I mean, I think people jump on that stuff pretty yeah. quick. It's uh, a, it's a mix. It's a mixed picture. Which which isn't to say that it's not a subterranean issue that doesn't need to be dealt with. But you know, I, I my sense would be that uh, um, we can recreate a dialogue, but because there's no reason why historically blacks and Jews, I think, in this society uh, have so much in common uh, and are such traditional allies uh, that the uh, the notion that uh, a few um, uh, stupid people can uh, can uh, deflect us from the things that we yeah. do share, I think. It well, I think it present. may be bigger in this town than it is in other towns with large black populations, mm-hmm. and surely that is because of the presence of the um, Farrakhan home base mm. right here. Um, we must pause. The last round of commercials were loaded with telephone calls, and I want to get to them instantly after we pause for these words. And quickly on to the telephones for your calls to Barack Obama. And here is the first. Hello, you're on the air. Hi, how are you? Fine, ma'am. Oh, good. Um, first of all, I like. I have two questions actually. Um, Barack Obama is such an unusual name. I was wondering if this was the same Barack Obama who did Project Vote in '92. Yeah, that 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 was me. Were uh, did you uh, participate? Yeah, it was a great success. I thought you did a good job. Yeah, well, thanks. I okay. appreciate that. Well, actually, I wanted to talk a little bit about your book and ask you a question about the book. Obviously, it's a very fascinating book, and I've got to go purchase it. But you've got the option that a lot of people didn't get, and that was to live in two worlds. Obviously, you've chosen to live as an African American. So, what do you see yourself doing to improve the quality of life? For other African American, especially for African American children, because it seems like that's where where your head seems to be. And, and and I wanted to know what it was that you saw yourself, since you could see both sides. What do you see yourself doing to improve the quality of life for African Americans? Well, the you know I've I've been trying to do uh, some things already in the community. As you know, Project Vote I think was a was an effort to get uh, the African American community more involved in the political process. Uh, my civil rights practice is important uh, in terms of defending uh, uh, the civil rights of African Americans. But I think long term, my interest may lie in uh, in politics and and policy making. Uh, it may not be uh, just elective office; it might be a point of as well. But w- what I see is the need to create a sense uh, uh, of dialogue and mutual responsibility uh, between the races, uh, and also to sort of re, uh, reorganize the African-American community around principles and values uh, uh, to, to really roll up our sleeves and say, we're going to take responsibility for our children. Mm-hmm. We are going to uh, take responsibility for our schools. We're going to take responsibility for economic development in the community. And I think that at this stage in our history, that probably has to be done uh, in legislative and community organizing uh, mechanisms as opposed to through the courts. Okay, well, I'll tell you what, if you ever decide to run for office, give me a call. I'll okay. be glad to work on your There you go. Thing. Thank right. you very much. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank Bye-bye. you, ma'am, for the call. And 
the number, 5917200. Some lines are available now. If you've been trying to reach us and getting the busy signal, do try again. And you are on the air. Good evening. Yes. Um, I, I don't know if this is cultural or what, but our I'm black, uh, sort of a mixture, but our neighborhoods are just plain noisy. I call it terrorism by noise. Do you know what it's like, I live in Inglewood, to have to hear a boombox go by your house every two or three minutes and your neighbors playing loud music, loud enough to be heard two blocks away for eight, ten hours at a stretch. And this is the thing that ticks me off. When you call the police, they do not seem to take noise complaints from our neighborhoods as seriously as they do from white neighborhoods. I wrote a letter to the Sun-Times about this, but I never saw it. After a while, I just quit looking for my letter. Terrorism by noise, and they wonder why do we flee? Why do we go to the suburbs? I have uh, two brothers and a sister who live in, in the suburbs of Hazelcrest, uh, Darien, and, oh, I shouldn't say too much or I'll give away my anonymity. But no one would dare to make the noise out there that they make in our neighborhoods, and, and they wonder why do we flee? Hey, there's no peace of mind. Right, I'm well. going to flee myself, and, and I just don't, I just, I, I, we should be loyal to the neighborhood. Right. Why should you sit here till it drives you bad? So well, well, you know, I think I, I think it sounds like I've lived fifteen years of my life in white neighborhoods. I know the difference. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to talk. No, over no, you. no, it's no problem. I mean, I think you're going through a struggle that a lot of us go through. My sense is that you know these problems. You know, you you mentioned boom boxes yeah. in particular. Every two uh, or three minutes. Right. Well, you know, I think again that goes back to the problem that we've got right now. In that, just please don't cut me off. I'm listening. In in, in that uh, kids. Uh, in a, a lot of African American communities, partly because of single parent families, mm-hmm. uh, are making their own rules, right? I mean, I think uh, I know that when I talk to African Americans who grew up uh, in the South or grew up here in Chicago, there was an yeah. era, there was a time when essentially you couldn't get away with something because no, there was going to be somebody out on the street telling you, you go back in the house, I'm going to tell your parents, I'm going to whack you, and your parents are going to whack you again. I remember like that. I remember. Right. And and I think that one of the things we have to restore is that sense of community, that sense that we are all looking after our children. And I I think that's a difficult, uh, because the truth of the matter is, I do agree that police responsiveness in Mm African-American communities uh, are less no, you, you, uh, attentive, you, but you I also I think, think that the community has to take responsibility for its children as well. Yes, yeah, so you know what I think? What's I think it? maybe maybe they think we all should love music, mm-hmm. and maybe I should just learn to get uh, maybe I should just learn to get along with it. Maybe you know, I I just don't get it. What's wrong with the Inglewood police? And I hope they're out there listening because it's okay. it's, it's a crying shame that you know that that sometimes they just ride by. Right. Hear the music and keep on writing. Well, ma'am, they're bound to have listened to you. You've made your point very vehemently and very thank effectively. You. Okay, thank you bye for the bye. call. Thank you for the call. And you are on the air. Good evening. Hi. I'm just wondering, um, I think part of the reason that um, uh, the issue that you raised about anti-Semitism, I think part of the reason that it, it tends to get larger than life is because of a dynamic that I've noticed among black leadership, which is that it seems that it's difficult for black leaders to disavow Remarks of other black leaders. Right. And I was just wondering if your guest had a comment about that dynamic. Well, you know, I think it's 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 true, and I think it's sad. I think part of it has to do with historically when you've got a embattled group, uh, there's a tendency to want to close ranks. There's a tendency uh, because we are always 
criticized or are always on the defensive, uh, not to air dirty laundry and not to criticize fellow leaders. And I think that one of the things that I do think has to change and I think has to be spoken about is that, uh, and, and, and part of this is what I discuss in the book, what being African American should stand for, and certainly what being a black leader in this country should stand for, uh, is principle and, and our values. And if, we're, if we can't organize ourselves around principles and values, then I think we can't expect to talk to the larger society about the principles and values that uh, are keeping us in a, in a distressed situation. So uh, hopefully this is uh, something that's going to change over time, but I think it, uh, uh, it's going to take work and it's going to take uh, conversations mm. between groups. You know, Randall Robinson was on McNeil Lehrer's. Right. Did you ever Trans- see it? Trans-America. And he was very busy criticizing the foreign minister of um, of Nigeria, right. who was on the program with him, and I think and that's criticizing that whole government far more than I've ever heard Randall Robinson criticize any black leadership. Well, in America. I think that's exactly right, and I think that's important. That Randall Robinson is an example of somebody who is doing a great service to the African cause. Absolutely, because yes. if we can't criticize. African leaders, if we can't criticize African American leaders, uh, if we can't hold them accountable in some fashion, uh, then I think we're destined not to have very good leadership. But I'd like Randall Robinson to, uh, I'm all for what he does, and he does fine work in this country, and and his comment and his campaign against the oppression in Nigeria is is very worthy and absolutely correct. But I'd like to hear him address the problems made by Louis Farrakhan. And his movement. Well, you know, again, uh, the, you know, the politics of uh, of uh, uh, African American uh, society are, are complex. I think there are a lot of leaders out there. Uh, I think one of the things that uh, we have a tendency of doing, and the media, I think, exacerbates this, is to get fixated on particular leaders. Yeah. The the African American community is is the only community where we tend to look for the leader. Right? We mm-hmm. we debate. You know, is Jesse Jackson the leader of the African American community? Is uh, is Louis Farrakhan the leader? Of and there's the a matter of pride. Community. I know that black leadership and black professionals generally say, "I'm not going to let uh, organized white press or white pressure right. push me into proving my uh, bona fides by denouncing a black leader because they require me to." Well, that's exactly right. Because then, what it looks like, and there, there's a long tradition of this, it looks like I am basically. Uh, my strings yeah. are being yanked yeah. by another community. I, I think that the the way to solve these issues is really to uh, foster dialogue with those leaders who you do respect, sure. who who those leaders who are about values and principles, and really point those people out. Here's a call I particularly want to get in. Good evening. You're on the air. Good evening. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, my concern in the black community is the problem with drugs mm-hmm. and uh, how they come so readily into our communities and what we can do as a community to get rid of them, because it seems to be so pervasive. Well, you know, I, I think it's, uh, it's a terrific problem. Uh, I must say that the general uh, population hasn't been very courageous about thinking about uh, legislation that might decriminalize. Uh, you know, I think that the economy of the drug industry, the drug trade mm-hmm. in the inner city is just tremendous. I think most of the violence uh, arises out of the fact that that's where money is to be made. Right. Uh, and I think that we need to think about how we can take the money out of the drug trade, because when you've got young African-Americans who don't have jobs, 
uh, and this is the way that they can buy their Nike shoes and and uh, buy their fancy cars. This is their only route to material success. Then I think uh, we've got to do something about the economics of it. At the same time, it, it, there's obviously a moral component. There's a spiritual component. I think that you know uh, poor communities are more vulnerable to drugs because they have less hope. And unless we are doing something to instill hope in these young kids, I mean, I know that when I, living in a situation much better than any of these kids uh, were living in, uh, when I was struggling in, in uh, high school with, uh, with my own identity and my own anger at being an African-American, mm-hmm. you know, I experimented with drugs for a while, and that had to do with a sense of hopelessness on my part. Uh, I think it wasn't until I recognized that I could actually have an impact on the larger society, that I had some power uh, in the society to, to, to change it, that uh, I could overcome that. And so I think there is a spiritual dimension that we have mm-hmm. to instill in our kids that's not there right now. Ma'am, thank you for the call. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Um, I must quickly work in mention with the fact that another interesting lawyer will be with us tomorrow night after another early ball game. John Martell is a leading attorney on the West Coast, Uh, in L.A. uh, particularly. And these days he is advisor for the prosecution in both the Menendez case, which is going to be retried, and the O.J. Simpson case. He's also done a new novel. We'll talk with John Martell about those two cases and about his quite interesting career tomorrow night. We've been talking tonight with a man who's pursuing a very interesting and promising career. Barack Obama is the author of the new book, Dreams, from My Father, a story of race and inheritance, and that's published by Times Books. I have a sense, indeed I have an intuition, that one might make a prediction, picking up on what you said before, that you might very well emerge in the political world fairly soon. Well, you know, the uh, it's something that I, I've considered uh, and that I'm thinking about. Certainly, uh, politics is of interest to me, and, and uh, it's something that I'll be thinking about. But right now, I'm just uh, happy that uh, the the struggle to write this book is done, and uh, I'm looking forward. If anybody is interested, uh, I'll be reading at 57th Street Books. We, uh, uh, since you're a fellow Hyde Parker mm-hmm. Milt, I should mention that they'll be on Friday, August 4th at seven o'clock at 57th Street Books. Uh, look forward to seeing some of your listeners there. Excellent. Thanks very much for joining us. We are uh, a little bit over time, so thanks to all for listening, and we return again tomorrow after an early ball game.